Hi everyone, I'm Monica Toriello and you're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the consumer and retail industry. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of this podcast series. We thought it'd be appropriate to start with an industry-wide perspective about what matters now and actually what will matter in the short term, the medium term, and the long term for both retailers and CPG manufacturers. And who better to talk to us about that than the global leader of McKinsey's consumer packaged goods and retail practices. Sajal Kohli is a senior partner based in McKinsey's Chicago office. And he's been with McKinsey for 25 years, so he has lots of experience working with consumer-facing companies worldwide. Thank you for being here, Sajal. Thank you, Monica. So before we get into industry talk, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. So I live in Chicago. I love the consumer sector and anything that looks even remotely consumer facing. I'm married. I have two teenage daughters and I'm originally from India, but I've made my professional home in the U.S. And I know that you've worked with clients on almost every continent. So let's start with a broad question about the industry. So we know that in the past four months or so, certain product categories like grocery and certain channels like e-commerce are way up in terms of sales and traffic, while others like clothing stores and restaurants are way down. Give us an overview of what's happening from your perspective. You know, it's been pretty unprecedented and on multiple fronts. It's a tale of mixed fortunes, if you will, right? So you have food and non-food in one dimension. You have retail and CPG on the other dimension. You have discretionary and non-discretionary spend on the other. And then you have the geographic access, uh, depending on, you know, the big part of consumer-facing businesses is what's been the public policy and health interventions that different countries have been through. So you kind of see this very interesting and unpredictable mosaic of fortunes. So there's no sort of one global, stereotypical, general description of how this has impacted the consumer sector. So I think, you know, it really depends on on what the context is. We saw consumer behavior change quite dramatically in 2008, 2009, but this is a very different crisis. How will consumer behavior really change? We are seeing some pretty interesting differences, right? So we're seeing a massive, massive flight to online. Uh, and even folks who scoffed at online in the past as consumers are finding the, the power of its convenience now because they didn't have any other choice. The real question is, how sticky will it be? Early signs uh, you know, seem to, if you read the tea leaves, it seems to be very sticky. I think the second question is, what's going to be the basis of competition and how will companies actually adapt to this new demand? You know, it's a big deal for CPG companies because suddenly while DTC or direct-to-consumer was an important part of your business, it's now at the forefront of how you need to go to market. And if you had underinvested pre-COVID, are you suddenly behind from a competitive standpoint? So I think there's lots of unresolved questions. So you mentioned that the shift to online is looking like it's going to be somewhat sticky. And I think McKinsey articles have said, for example, in grocery, online was like at 3% penetration in the United States, and it's expected to go up to 8 to 10% this year and then settle back down to about 5 to 6%. So tell us specifically about the grocery sector. The economics of online and last mile delivery have been tricky forever. Grocers typically lose money on delivery. So how are grocers going to address that or how should they address that? Online was always sort of the the promise of tomorrow, right, for grocers. And depending on which market you were in, Asia always set the pace in terms of delivery and last mile. Uh, If you look at Europe and the UK has always been a prime market for grocery. If you think about the different players and the online penetration, the US was a little bit lagging other than sort of the, you know, the digital disruptors that came in and changed the game. 
it, it looks pretty clear that this online penetration, the surge in online penetration that we've seen from a grocery perspective is going to be very sticky. So the question is, how do companies react? You know, if you don't have your own self-distribution supply chain, you will have to partner. So I think the whole notion of partnerships and alliances is at the forefront. So if you don't have, if your distribution center and your supply chain was largely configured for large drop economics, you know, pallets and trucks going to stores, this is now small drop economics. It's small orders for consumers in you know, high-density locations. The entire cost structure and the cost profile of that fulfillment method mode is quite different. I think you'll see a lot of grocery uh, operators double down their investment in online. But as they build up their muscle, they will think about partnership and alliances uh, in a very different way than they have in the past. Let's talk about the implications on real estate. Because grocery stores, for the most part, have been doing well during the pandemic. They've remained open and people continue to shop at grocery stores. But for other types of retailers, I'm thinking of, you know, clothing stores or specialty stores, for example. What are the implications on real estate? So certain markets, including the U.S., were already overstored prior to COVID-19. And now the pandemic has brought to the fore questions about the role of the store and what people should do in stores and the contact-free economy, and all of that. How should retailers think about stores? It's pretty clear that this is going to be a pretty protracted recovery, right? So this is not a, I'm going to try and fix something for the next two or three quarters. We think this is a multi-year journey that we're on right now. So you've got to fundamentally rethink your, your bricks and mortar and what the in strategic intent of the store is in terms of how you go to market. If your stores didn't have positive four-wall economics, it's going to be very difficult for you to actually make that specific store a viable operating entity. So one of the, the hypotheses we have is that there's going to be pretty massive uh, rationalization of the store footprint. Uh, and the type of format is going to change quite a bit. So for example, things like buy online, pick up and store or curbside delivery or delivery to home. Consumer facing businesses have talked about omnichannel for a while. This is the moment of truth on are you ready for omnichannel or not. You've also got to remember from a macro perspective, of most developed markets, the U.S. has the highest amount of square footage per capita than any other country. So if you were a retailer that had a big cost gap versus your peer set or not a very attractive value proposition and then COVID hits, you're going to have some pretty significant uh, decisions to make on real estate. You know, one of my clients, for example, is actually thinking about pulling out of an entire region. And the entire business case of staying or pulling out anchors on the question of what do they do with real estate costs. And so it's, it's pretty existential. Are there any interesting in-store technologies that you think will take off in the next few months? Anything experimental out there that could revolutionize the customer experience in stores? I'll just talk about a few that folks were really experimenting with that might get accelerated or, you know, um, might, we might see them at scale right now. So obviously you all talk about self-checkout and grocery stores. It's still quite mass fascinating, right? And even after being at it for six or seven years, that amount of penetration of number of consumers using the self-checkout machines is not very high. We think that's going to actually get massively accelerated, right? That's one. I think the second is if the consumer really wants to be minimize the amount of time they're in the store. What technologies will that consumer need birth where your search time in the store gets massively reduced? Does that mean, you know, there's some physical changes. You might lay out the store very differently. Should the store associates have 
you know, different technology with which they can actually locate product. Could you imagine going into a store and actually the store's map pops up on your smartphone and you put in a, you know, you search the item and it actually literally shows you a red dot and where the, actually the item is located. There will be technologies that will give you much better real-time sense of where the inventory is. What are you carrying in the store versus what's in the DC? So you can let the consumer know they don't spend much more time and you can get it to them. So I think we're going to see a birth of multiple technologies. And I think the, the, the last one is... Uh, I think the consumers are going to value much more, how much do you know me? So if you have my purchase history, can you almost give me recommendations and prompts, whether I'm in a store or not in a store, uh, so you can make this much more convenient for me? So I, I think we're going to see a whole broad spectrum. Uh, uh, and the only thing that will mitigate the acceleration here is if there's less funding for startups uh, that are really birthing these technologies. So funding for startups is one thing, but I think another important aspect of it all is talent, digital and tech talent. And on the one hand, this big shift to remote working has shown that your talent doesn't have to be based where your company is based. But on the other hand, there's tons of competition for the same kinds of talent. Give some advice to retail and consumer packaged goods CEOs or executives as they think about attracting and retaining this talent. You know, what's fascinating to me in COVID, and I feel this personally, is there is this very interesting phenomenon that even though you're not spending time with folks in person, there is this very in bizarre and counterintuitive sense of intimacy that folks are having through Zooms and WebExes. The other thing that I keep hearing from client executives is they have not seen actually a dent in productivity. In fact, they think productivity might have gone up, which is also fascinating. So I think there might be two dimensions here. There's one which is, if where we settle is certain kinds of talent is actually happier working remotely than working you know, in a corporate headquarters, doesn't that create an unprecedented opportunity for consumer-facing businesses to actually attract talent that they were not able to attract? Uh, this talent is also going to be even more sought after now. Um, so CHROs and you know, chief talent officers need to think very hard about how do you retain this talent and make sure that they're satisfied. So one is, you know, how do you make sure that their mental health and their well-being is in place while they're working remotely? And on the other hand, still give them incentives. So, you know, once again, all bets are off, right? This is a whole new playbook of how do you think about, you know, prospecting talent, talent retention, talent progression. And I think the last thing I'd like to say also is these consumer-facing businesses are very good barometer of the ethnic makeup of a country. Uh, because they're distributed workforces. I think one other thing that the CHR is more than ever before, you know, everybody has diversity and inclusion programs, but this, especially in some geographies like the US, uh, is going to be a pretty, it's, it's going to become a centerpiece of how do you maintain diversity and inclusion so that you can reflect the needs of society. And I think consumer companies should really set the pace uh, for the rest of the world. That's interesting. How do you think automation plays into that? Because, you know, we've got this confluence of trends, right? We've got automation on the one hand, diversity and inclusion on the other, massive unemployment in certain parts of the, of the sector. How does all of that play into how a CEO ought to think about labor and talent and automation? So we did an MGI, MGI piece of work where you know, 55% of a grocery store, the way we know it today, could be automated. So let's just talk about the countervailing forces here. 
it's got massive promise when it comes to SGNA and resetting the cost structure from a labor cost standpoint for organizations. But it comes with a pretty heavy burden of, well, what happens to these displaced workers? And when you look at the kinds of roles that will actually get impacted by, you know, future of work technologies, you break it out into two or three buckets. The first one is um, some roles, the way we know them today, might just not exist. They might just go away. There are a second set of roles that while we might call them the same thing, the actual work those colleagues do is going to change materially. But then there's a third bucket, which is all these new roles that are going to actually emerge. Think about robot maintenance. You know, how many retailers have robot maintenance on their payroll today? So you've got to think about all three of these in terms of what's your workforce strategy going to be in light of you know, these new technologies. So let's imagine you get to that answer and every organization will decide for itself on you know, what, where, where their workforce fits in those three buckets that I was just mentioning. The real question then is, there's a massive premium on reskilling. Who's actually going to reskill this workforce? And that's a public policy question, but that's also an organizational question. And so to me, uh, as I think about the CHRO and I think about the chief talent officer, I think they'll have to think very hard about how do you reskill? How do you train, retrain folks that are going to stay with you? Should there be public-private partnerships between you know, policymakers and governments and private institutions on how would you take on this whole reskilling challenge? This is actually agnostic of COVID. This was a trend that we'd seen you know, pretty strong and loud and prominent pre-COVID as well. I think it's just going to get accelerated much more right now. So speaking of trends that were already accelerating pre-COVID, sustainability is one of them, right? And some observers feel like maybe sustainability is going to sort of take a left turn because of recent events. But what is your thought on sustainability? Is that something that consumers will continue to care about or will maybe even care about more? You've got to separate out uh, the two sectors. So if you think about CPG versus retail. I think if you look at consumer packaged goods, um, I think this has been an area of focus for a while. Uh, and it is now a table stake. I think on the retail side, it was much more mixed. There were some retailers, if you think about you know, apparel and discretionary spend, where some companies were really trying to make that their point of differentiation and their value proposition. There were others which were you know, larger retailers, for example, uh, where this was a part of what they wanted to do as a part of the values of the company. So I think they're very, very, they had many different perspectives on this, but I think my sense is, or our sense right now is, um, it's going to get amped up across both sectors. I think the real question for me is, where will companies actually focus? Which part of sustainability will they actually anchor on? Because I also feel, other than just the societal and climate change impact, in all the places where we've seen traction, it has to connect back to what the business strategy is. I think if it's actually a parallel universe, it doesn't actually really get enough attention in any organization. So I think organizations are going to figure out which part of sustainability they stand for and how are they going to contribute. And I think much of that is driven too by millennials and Gen Z consumers, right? The younger demographic. Talk to us a little bit about that demographic. How should consumer companies think about millennials and Gen Zers? 
Yeah, you know, the younger generation, whether you take, uh, take millennials or Gen Z, uh, it, it's pretty fascinating. We've been doing the consumer sentiment survey here during COVID in about 42 different countries, and we take a pulse every week. In general, across regions of the world, it's a much more optimistic cohort. So that's one thing to, they're quite different when it comes to, you know, as when compared to uh, older cohorts. I think the second is, uh, you've got, you know, this whole question of who a millennial is. We just did some proprietary research last year where we looked at millennials as a cohort. And what's fascinating is there are actually five or six segments within the millennial group as we know it. And a couple of them actually really behave like baby boomers in terms of their buying behavior. And, you know, there's a big spectrum of age within that group as well, whereas some others, so for example, have zero propensity for, you know, zero, uh, don't, don't find stores attractive at all, and they do everything online. Whereas there are others which are actually much more like the, the artisan value of stores and the curation, and they like to touch and feel product. So I think we are to think about, well, which millennial are we really talking about and who are we actually catering to? It's a pretty broad spectrum and it's a pretty broad population cohort. Uh, but some things are pretty consistent, right? They care about the environment. They actually care about uh, what the organization stands for and how they're going to you know, give back to society, which I think are going to be pretty important uh, uh, you know, table stakes for, for companies going forward. And the reason I, I say that is, you know, in the next four or five years, uh, millennials as a cohort are going to have much more discretionary power as a cohort than baby boomers did. They might not have it on a per capita basis because they're still sort of in early parts of their career, etc. But that's a pretty big shift. So when, you know, CPG companies and retail companies look forward over the next 10 years, well, who are you really designing the store for? Should your website experience be much more millennial oriented? These are these glacial macro trends that impact these longer term decisions that companies are going to make. You know, where should I put a store? Should it be in an urban location? Should it be in a suburban location? You know, where is the population shift going to be? Where is the discretionary spend? And we are seeing all these things play out at the same time. I don't think there's any clear trend yet. And COVID's obviously, you know, uh, is an overlay on what we were seeing before. So we have to kind of see things settle a little bit before, you know, we see how they tip their hands, so to speak. So CEOs are grappling with all of these trends at the moment, and there's a lot to do, a lot to think about. What are the two to three top priorities for a consumer-facing company CEO today? There's so much context, right? What categories you're in, what geographies you're exposed to. It's tough to have sort of a standard list of things, you know, I would say, you know, executives need to focus on, but at least two or three things that are emerging. It is absolutely clear and that the actions you take now will actually define whether you win the recovery or not. It is strategy under uncertainty. You know, so you're going to want all the perfect set of facts and you're going to want all the trend analysis and you're just not going to have it. Calming the waters with, while not having perfect data, but moving towards whatever your North Star is, I think is super, super important. So I think that's one. I think the second is um, challenging a lot of assumptions, right? So why shouldn't we partner with folks outside of the industry if they can do something better than we can? Should we be sharing data between our customers and ourselves? Should a CPG company be sharing data with retailers and vice versa, you know, just to, to serve the consumer better? 
Um, should you think about sourcing quite differently? Just think about just geopolitical tensions, right? So I think the, the second one for me is everything's on the table. You've got to start thinking about how do you reset your cost, cost structure to be fighting fit. Those assumptions should be on the table as well. Speed is going to once again become the basis of competition. So one other thing that executives should see is, you know, what's our operating model in the company? Do we need to have all of these layers? Do we need to have all of these multiple handoffs? Should we organize differently for speed? When I step back, I'd say, you know, take all of your wisdom that you've accumulated through your career. Now, put it all into a box and then shake up the box. Then open it up and you'll see a bunch of broken pieces. You know, you'll see some pieces sort of stick to the corners. It's going to be a very different mosaic. Well, Sajal, can you think of any examples of management teams that are doing this kind of thing, whether it's you know, rethinking their operating model or redesigning themselves for speed, anything like that that you feel could be an example to other companies as well? One of our clients, which is a, uh, a global company, and it is quite amazing uh, how they have fundamentally challenged the way their supply chain is configured. They've decided that they're not going to run their own op- op- the distribution centers, which was, you know, in the past, uh, they always sort of valued that as one of their sources of competitive advantage. They are fundamentally changing um, where they source from. So, you know, these are, these are pretty fundamental pivots away from what's driven success of the company. Another one is a retailer who has actually basically decided that they are going to take four layers out of their corporate headquarters. Less because of cost, they were actually doing quite well, but they just want to flatten the organization. And they have collapsed six or seven functions into customer-facing functions. So for example, they have a part of the corporate center that just says, this is the millennial organization. And all they do from a marketing perspective, from an assortment perspective, from a branding perspective, that's the millennial crowd. And that's all they obsess about. So, you know, this is a lot like how digital disruptors are organized. So it's, you know, uh, they've used the crisis to actually reinvent themselves, which is another example. You know, a fascinating example is uh, a food retailer who actually went dark. And I don't mean that uh, in any ominous way, but they just went dark because they've taken, they're on a pace to move 40 or 50% of their bricks and mortar operation and turn it into dark stores. And so basically they've said, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to not have to have 10, 15% online penetration. I anticipate 50, 60% online penetration, how I'll compete going forward. So I'm going to repurpose my bricks and mortar as dark kitchens or you know, as dark stores uh, and make them fulfillment centers. They're not for a consumer, but it's going to be like a delivery center, which by itself is not surprising, but the pace at which they are doing it is quite amazing. So you, you could imagine they will, be, they will look dramatically different versus their peer set in three or four years if they you know, move at this pace. Those are great examples. So maybe as we wrap up this podcast, just give our listeners one parting thought. What's the one thing you would tell a CEO to keep in mind as they navigate the consumer industry's next normal? The amount of acceleration we've seen on several parts of consumer-facing businesses, whether it's online penetration, etc., we've actually covered decades in four months. And that should be the new heuristic for pace of change. And I think you've got to come to terms with that reality because that means that your entire time horizon of how you made decisions, etc., is going to materially change. 
with imperfect data in times of uncertainty. So what does that really mean? That means high tolerance for ambiguity. That means a ton of grit. But I think it also means what a CEO does really well, which is you know bring calm to the troops and bring them along. It's gonna, there's going to be a massive, massive premium on how do you bring folks along uh, on the journey. It's very sort of visceral, it's very existential, it's very human, but I think that's going to make a big difference. Very human indeed. I think we'll end on that note. Thanks again for talking to us today, Sajal. And to our listeners, thanks for sticking around. Till next time, this is Monica Toriello. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com soon. To suggest ideas for future episodes, please email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email updates on McKinsey.com. This was the first episode of season one. Check back in two weeks for the next episode. Thanks again for listening.